It is August 2nd, 1873, and a fire is consuming 20 blocks of businesses and homes in downtown Portland. Let me stand next to your fire. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at ORHistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Today, we'll be talking about the Great Fire of 1873, the biggest blaze in Portland history. And let Jimmy take over. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. In the early days of Portland, firefighting was not always a professional position. Volunteer firehouses called companies were established and given inspiring brassy names to go along with their number designation, such as Willamette Number no. 1, Columbia Number no. 3, and Protection Number no. 4. The city gave the companies the equipment, as well as a building for operations. The units developed into something akin to fraternal organizations or social clubs, and membership was exclusive indeed. Most of Portland's elite men were volunteer firefighters, and when a vacancy in a company appeared, a replacement had to be agreed upon by all of the current members. Notable names included William Ladd, David Burnside, George Williams, and Henry and Josiah Phelan. The companies attended lavish suppers and socials, dances and parties, and were often a desired attraction at parades. They also fought about a dozen fires a year. Steve Skidmore, who bequeathed the fountain to the city that bears his name, was a foreman for Multnomah No. 2, which was located on 2nd and Oak. Portland's volunteers wore black pantaloons, black cravats, and garish red shirts as uniforms. Steve's was emblazoned with a large number two of his company. In good old Stumptown, bricks were quite expensive, but wood came cheap. So most of the city's buildings were made of wood. Plank sidewalks along the storefronts were lit with oil lamps, and when buckets of rain weren't pouring, the danger of fire was great. The process of firefighting was arduous and grueling right from the start, as the men hauled their engines to the fires. There were no horses to take on this toil, and this continued for some time. Listen to a report to the city council from 1890. It stated that, it is necessary that horses should be provided for at least two of the companies to haul the engines. The volunteer firemen have always responded with alacrity when called on at all hours of day or night, but it requires time after the alarm is sounded for enough of the firemen to reach the engine houses to haul the engines to the scene of the fire. And after they do reach the fire, they're exhausted from the hard work hauling the engines over the rough muddy streets and not able to do the work prior to them, for which they receive no compensation. Horses should be kept ready for service at a moment's notice. 
the equipment used by Portland's red shirts was obviously rudimentary. In 1874, just one year after the Great Fire, an inventory of Steve Skidmore's company revealed Multnomah Engine Company Number 2, 74 active members, one second-class new, and one third-class Silsby Rotary Engines, two hose reels, and 1,200 feet carbolized hose in good condition. In addition to primitive equipment, the firefighters had limited water available for their use, restricted to caulked wooden reservoirs that measured 15 feet by nine feet deep that were buried at nine intersections across the growing city. As is often the case, it would take the revelations of a major disaster to expose these deficiencies. And Portland had a doozy of a disaster on the way. August of 1873, drought had captured the city, and a dry Chinook wind blew in from the Columbia Gorge. On Saturday, August 2nd, it was a very hot day, and it was about to get even hotter in our beautiful city of just over 12,000 residents. At 4.20 a.m., a call of fire, fire, fire rang out. <laughs> A large store of oils and varnishes at the furniture shop of Hergren and Schindler on First and Taylor seems to have been the origin of the orange-flamed atrocity that exploded with an appalling roar that was fearful to the ear. The flames shot high into the air, and a stiff breeze from the northwest carried the ruinous, fiery fiend across Front Street, spreading swiftly and savagely. Six blocks were soon raging as the desperate firefighters attempted to contain the inferno. The heat was so intense that French plate windows at the St. Charles Hotel cracked and snapped. Just as the inferno was picking up speed, a wretched development occurred. While the disparate fire crews from the distinct companies tried to coordinate to battle this blaze, other areas of Portland, an assumed safe distance away from the presumed path of the windswept firestorm, were also bursting into flame. Spontaneous combustion in isolated areas seemed at hand. And looking up from the Occidental Hotel, we saw that slender spire of flame again, shooting up like a viper's tongue, followed by the same dense billows of pitchy smoke so suggestive of fiendish design. Again, the wearied thousands turned to battle with the fire demon. The fires roared for much of the day. Twenty-two blocks were completely destroyed or heavily damaged. From front through second, and spanning from clay in the south, all the way north to Morrison Street. Eight months before, a fire at a Chinese laundry had destroyed several blocks around Morrison and Front Streets. The properties from this original blaze had not been rebuilt by August of 1873, and it is thought 
that these empty lots helped contain the August fire from spreading across the northern section of the city and creating an even more horrific result. Damages were massive and were determined to be in the range of one and a quarter million dollars, this in a city assessed at a total of nine million. Initial reports featured the bravery of the volunteer firefighters on the scene. As an example, a correspondent from the Oregonian wrote soon after the Inferno that, Looking back over the terrible scenes on Saturday, we recall with pride a score of instances wherein our gallant red shirts performed such deeds of valor as made the cheek tingle with pride. Number two's magnificent machine behaved splendidly. Number four saved Smith's Mill. Number three fought nobly in the hottest of the fight for possession of the St. Charles Hotel, and number one sustained her ancient record for gallantry. Number five was always effective. We are proud of our department. But later, the reports of the fire crews, so admirable and glowing like oh so many orange coals, seemed to fade and blacken with time. Historian Doug Kent Crispin. Portland's limited reservoir system was faulted, as was the non-professional nature of the volunteer fire companies. Without a centralized command and control system, coordination was often jumbled and even non-existent. Ultimately, it was decided to erect a 4,200-pound bell as a fire warning system, which could be heard all the way to Oregon City. But city leaders had other issues to investigate. Right off the bat, the authorities expected arson. There can be no doubt but what the origin of the fearful holocaust that has wrapped the city in ashes and ruin is attributable to the work of incendiarism. And not just one arson incident, but multiple fires started at multiple locations on that day of infamy. The first article describing the incident noted at least five fires that were apparently not started by the wind and falling embers, but appeared to have been lit by individuals as the other conflagrations were raging. In one example, the article noted that a fire in a two-story house at 3rd and Yamhill was raging on a carpet in one of the bedrooms. The correspondent noted that while there was a wood stove in the room, the stove had not been lit for days. Two other locations were located where suspected arsonists had attempted to light further fires, but were apparently unsuccessful. A disturbing possibility arose when examining the theory of arson. A short time before the Great Fire, several notes on heavy paper, written in red ink, were slipped under the doors of homes in the area known to employ Chinese laborers. The notes declared the author as a member of the Ku Klux Klan. As an illustration, listen to the contents of the note slipped under the door of Mrs. Allen, who operated a boarding house and employed a few Chinese domestic workers on 7th Street between Alder and Washington. Mrs. Allen, this is to warn you not to hire any more Chinamen. Remember Saturday. The note was signed A of the 28. Mrs. Allen received the note on July 31st, 1873. The author references Saturday, and indeed, the Great Fire was on Saturday, August 2nd. Bishop Morris received another note of similar foreboding a week or two before the fire and thought nothing of it, until after the conflagration. His note was signed by 28 strong men. 
Racked by an economic depression, white drudges felt great animosity towards the Chinese laborers of the city. But would they stoop to such a reprehensible deed as to actually burn down a major portion of the City of Roses? We may never know. An official explanation as to the cause of the fire was never determined. When my love stands next to your love I can't compare love When it's not love It's not love Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Which is on fire! podcast was written by Doug Kent Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available upon request. Check out our website at orhistory.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. Or follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also like us on Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com And coming up on Sunday, October 9th, 2011 at 2 p.m., the film Riches of a City will be shown at the Fifth Avenue Cinemas at 510 Southwest Hall Street. The film examines the Skidmore District and provides a wonderful snapshot of that district's change through the decades. And of course, the Great Fire of 1873 is observed. Dr. Carl Abbott of Portland State University's School of Urban Studies and Planning and Bill Hawkins of the Architectural Heritage Center will be guest speakers. The admission is free, but seats are limited to 100 people. So come early. Join us October 9th for a viewing of Riches of a City. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. of a City will be shown at the Fifth Avenue Cinemas at 510 Southwest Fuck Street.